This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. When catastrophe strikes, a military invasion, a natural disaster, or a terrorist attack, nearly everyone tries to flee, but some people run toward the danger. First responders do that, and so do photojournalists. Mataz Aziza is a Gazan photographer who had 25,000 Instagram followers before the start of the Israel-Hamas war. He now has more than 14 million. I'm here today to show you the massive destruction that happened to the the most beautiful areas in the Strip, in Gaza City. Uh, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I don't know what should I say. It's like a whole square. 15 to 20 halves got demolished. Photojournalists documenting conflict do so at huge personal risk. Maybe this last message from me. That was Gazan photographer Mohammed Zanun. Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war on October 7th, 40 journalists and media workers have been killed, 35 of them Palestinian. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports that at least six photographers have died. Their work and the work of other photojournalists working in conflict zones tells the story of war in a way that words alone just can't. For the latest installment of our Ask A series, we're asking war photojournalists about their life and their work. We'll meet our photographers after this short break. I'm Todd Zwillick, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. we got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's meet our panel. Joining us from London is Lindsay Adario. She's covered conflicts all over the world, including in Afghanistan, Iraq, Darfur, Syria, lots of other places. Most recently, the war in Ukraine for The New York Times. She's also author of the memoir, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. 
Joining us from Paris is Peter von Ockmal. He's a photographer with the agency Magnum Photos, and he just returned from the border between Israel and Gaza. He's also photographed the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the January 6th rally and the assault on the Capitol, and recently the aftermath of the earthquake in Turkey. And also with us is photojournalist Nicole Tung, who's based in Istanbul, Turkey. She recently returned home from a reporting trip in Ukraine with the New York Times. She's previously covered conflicts in Libya and Syria. So thank you all so much for joining us. Peter, I want to start with you. You flew to Israel just a couple of days after Hamas' attack on Israel on October 7th. What did you photograph once you got there? Um, yeah, I, I, well, I've been working there for, for a long time and, and tend to focus on conflicts that, that I feel personally invested in. And, and so what I did when I, when I got there was kind of immediately followed, immediately followed kind of the, the news cycle. What had happened was the kibbutzim along the border that were, were attacked and were just slowly opening up to kind of limited access from journalists. I tried to prioritize uh, getting in there at first, which was possible essentially through, through press tours, through IDF access, but, but which were pretty unvarnished. It was really just seeing the evidence of what was there, and that, that was the main, the main focus in the aftermath for me. In terms of the evidence, Peter, um, can you... It's been confirmed so many times, but you're an eyewitness. Can you confirm some of the worst stories that we've heard about the um, about the horrible carnage, the torture? We don't have to get too much more specific, but dismemberment, some of the other things that we've been told happened on those kibbutzes on October 7th? I mean, I, of course, I can only confirm the, uh, what, I, what I saw, you know, the aftermath of, of horrific violence, the details of the stories, you know, you know, I did not witness those things myself. Um, you know, I heard, of course, recounted in the, the forensic center from the first responders who were dealing with the identification uh, of the people that were killed. And, and you know, it's very, it's very tricky as a journalist sometimes. You know, you, you have to sort of suss out as best you can what you think is is real and honest and and what you and 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 at other times how you feel like you're being manipulated by people um and it's an imperfect science uh but in in cases like these particularly in cases of trauma when you hear from first responders the sort of their like unvarnished straight from their core emotions to their words you know you tend to 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 believe it and and in a moment where where this conflict is getting weaponized and propagandized in all sorts of different ways by by every side, you know the best, you know the best we can do is kind of stick to 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 what is best we can establish is is true and real. But of course, these truths that we hear, this reality we hear, falls in the context of many other truths and many other realities. And how to frame that and how to contextualize that for an audience. I mean, that's the big challenge, Mm. I think, for us as journalists. And we're going to get to so many questions uh, that listeners have, not only in Gaza and Israel, but in other conflicts that these journalists have covered. I should note that in the week since the October 7th attack, uh, Israel's foreign ministry reports that 1,200 people have been killed in Israel, mostly on October 7th. More than 11,000 have been killed in Gaza. That's according to the health ministry in Gaza. Um, A lot of listeners are asking about an incident that happened last week that was in the news that I want to make sure we get to before we dive into listener questions. An Israeli media watchdog group called Honest Reporting 
published an article alleging that some photojournalists may have had advanced knowledge of Hamas's attack on October 7th. The media outlets that printed their photos included AP, Reuters, New York Times have all denied that allegation. On Thursday, the executive director of Honest Reporting said that despite the name, it's not a news organization. They're simply asking questions. It's really useful, I think, to get the reactions of the photojournalists that are here. Lindsay, I know that you heard that story. What was your reaction when you heard the allegation that some photojournalists may have had advanced knowledge going in and then sort of the aftermath of that story that got out? I mean, look, it's a, I'm not there, so it's hard to ask me about a situation on the ground in a country where I'm not functioning, you know, where I'm not working. But I would say that as photojournalists working in conflict zones, everyone on this panel knows that the first, you know, timeliness is key and that any time we hear something happening, the first thing we do is grab our gear, our protective gear, our cameras, and we run to that scene because it is the best way to get an uncensored view of what's happening because the more time that passes, the more time, the more a situation closes off and it closes off to journalists, it closes off to photographers. So we often rush there as fast as possible. So I would say based on my own experience that uh, word travels very fast in war zones. Uh, people are very tapped in. Uh, we have WhatsApp groups. We have, you know, we monitor Signal, Telegram. I mean, we are constantly trying to find out what's going on as fast as possible. So I can only speak from my past knowledge. Um, Nicole, listeners have been asking about embedding with a military group if that's different from embedding with a terrorist group in this case, sometimes that's a label, sometimes it's a real distinction. Um, Are there terms that journalists, photojournalists agree to when embedding? Are those terms different if it's not a uniformed, regular army? How does it work in the real world, in the chaos? Um, uh, Like Lindsay, I can only speak from my experience working in the different countries where there are non-state actors, um, militant groups. uh, Some are considered terrorist organizations. Um, But I would say that generally speaking, a lot of the terms that they set tend to be quite similar. Um, Working in a place like Ukraine, you have a set of rules uh, of not using real names of uh, soldiers, for example, or giving locations and and, and details like that. And the same worked for for me in both uh, Syria and Iraq, um, where uh, I think because of the advances in technology uh, that everybody is quite savvy um, about, you know, being geolocated and being identified. Um, And so generally speaking, yeah, the terms are quite similar. I think I can't really speak in the case of the Gaza um, journalists, um, but I can imagine that uh, what we haven't seen is the images of Hamas operating on the ground, fighting back against the IDF, for example. you know, most of what we have seen are pictures of civilians fleeing from the north of Gaza to the south and of them sheltering in hospitals, the hospitals also being targeted. Um, so they have been covering it more from a civilian aspect, uh, but are still very much targets, um, as we've seen. Peter, listeners have a lot of question about access in general. Just, just in a word, how does ac- access is often necessary if you're traveling with regular army or with other groups, they have to know you're there and accept that you're there. How does that affect the work and the separation you have to have from the story? 
I mean, access, access takes a million forms. I mean, you know, when you're going into someone's form, uh, going into someone's home, you need to be granted permission when you're working with a militant group. There's permissions when you're working with, you know, and everyone lets you in based on what, how they consider you to fit into their interests for the most part. Um, and, and sometimes those interests are selfish and sometimes they're, they're, they're complex. And in the case of, uh, you know, the aftermath of these attacks in Israel, uh, you know, I, I didn't really feel manipulated by what I was being shown because what I was being shown would be the thing that I wanted to see even without that access. Mm. Um, and and that is the, and, and because I think I got there, you know, very quickly after the events happened, it, I was able to see that, you know, needing, I think we can all probably agree this point, like needing access, this is the, the core of what we do. It's always a, a dance for access. And, and the question is, how do you stay... How do you stay independent and see clearly within the framework of needing this access? And, and that's really the heart of, I think, what, what we do and, and becomes increasingly complicated in the world we live in now where everyone can kind of tell their own story because everyone's got the technology to just with their phone, their camera phone alone and the means to kind of through social media. So, so the challenges that we've always faced uh, are something that become even more challenging now when, when journalists aren't the only ones that are telling the story. We're going to head to a quick break here. We'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation with this message we got from a listener in Pittsburgh, wants to know, how did you decide not just to become photojournalists, but photojournalists in dangerous conflict zones? Put another way by another uh, listener, Lindsay, why do you do it? (laughs) Um, I personally never planned on becoming a war photographer. I sort of got into it. Initially, I was curious. I started photographing more and more, realizing I could tell stories with photographs. And then I moved to India 
in 2000 and was reading about the situation for women living under the Taliban and was curious and wanted to go and hear from those women about their own lives and how they felt about living under Taliban rule rather than just reading projections from Western journalists. And so for me, it was really a matter of going and and doing the reporting myself and, and photographing and trying to understand And then Afghanistan, then September 11th happened, and I ended up going right back to Afghanistan, and then the war in Iraq, and et cetera. I continue to do it because I believe in this work. I believe that journalists provide a service to the public. I believe that information in war zones is imperative, uh, both for the public to see what's happening, and for policy leader, for policymakers to understand the repercussions of their policies and how what's happening on the ground. Peter, why don't you take this one? Susie in St. Louis texted to ask, how do you get those awful images out of your head? we got a lot of listeners asking this question. Before you answer, I just I, I should stipulate, for instance, Lindsay's book of conflict photography, it's not all uh, about violence. In fact, most of it isn't. Most of it's not about blood. It is in there. Much of it, so much of it is about behind the scenes and the day-to-day details, sometimes the beauty, sometimes the mundane boredom of war, families at war. So let's not have the impression that the only job is photographing injured people, but that is part of it. And a lot of people, including Susie, Peter, wanted to know how do you get those awful images out of your head when the day is done, and I assume in the weeks and months after. Yeah, well, I think it's a good point you make that that war is bigger than violence itself. And and I think because it's... such a core part of history and an extension of these societies. I mean, I think that's the main draw for me and a lot of us is that 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 just war and violence is a small part of a much bigger picture, much much bigger question of the times we live in. In terms of the images of, of violence, how you get them out of your head, I mean, it's changed over time. When I was younger, I dealt with it in all the kind of cliched ways that didn't help at all, um, you know, and... and uh, uh, but I would say, you know, ther- therapy has been a big deal for me in terms of kind of finding ways to to understand my experiences and contextualize them in, in my life and, and give me the sort of strength to, to keep on going. Uh, but as a result, it's also changed my relationship with, with going to conflict where I don't do it as much as I did or I do it in a more calculated way, uh, uh, partly because that's, as, that's just I do as much as I, I can handle. You said something that caught my attention there, Peter, um, coping with it in all of the, I, I think you said dysfunctional ways, or maybe you said that. Um, Cliche. Are drugs and alcohol self-medicating, coping? is Self-medicating. Se- yeah, self-medicating. Separately. Is that is it common among people in the field? Um, yeah. I'd say so. What do you, what do you, what do you Nicole? I Let's know. see what you think. I, I feel like less so than previous generations. You know, I think the whole, like, you know, when you look at uh, sort of people who have done this work before us, I think there was a lot more than there is now. I think that overall, a lot of my colleagues are, are pretty healthy. I mean, of course, save for the few who clearly self-medicate by drinking and doing whatever they have to do. But I think, I don't know, I, I feel like it's definitely less so than when I first started out, let's say, 23 years ago. Go ahead, Nicole. I think there's also a lot more awareness of mental health um, issues in this particular industry, in this field. Um, so there are there is a little bit more of a support network in that sense. Um, I think that this 
particular generation or our generation of photographers now kind of deal with it and cope with things in in a different way and and for me that's just been been talking about it and processing things after after I, I go I come back from a trip for example but definitely the awareness um, and and it being less of a stigma has has helped it along too well we're talking about the the mental and emotional safety in your field. A lot of people want to know about physical safety too. One listener in Connecticut wants to know how do you protect yourself physically and what training and equipment do you have when you're in the field, Lindsay? Um, I think, uh, first of all, I physically try to stay very fit and strong. I think a big part of our job is being agile and being strong and carrying a lot of gear. So for me, uh, as a 50-year-old woman, I work hard at that. You know, I, I'm at the gym all the time. I do Pilates for my back, and I try and stay strong. I think um, we have protective gear. We wear bulletproof vests, helmets. Uh, we have medical kits. We have security advisors with us, um, you know, advising us in the field on uh, not only sort of calculated risks, but sort of helping us weigh how much risk we are willing to take and what sort of the, what the consequences are of each decision we make. And so I think there are ways, you know, it's sort of a constant negotiation, you know, depending on where I'm at physically and mentally. We got this, a lot of questions on the theme of AI and deep fakes in a, in a profession where, Telling the truth and showing images of truth are so important. Um, a lot of people on the internet can circumvent that with their own, uh, with their own. I don't even want to call it art, but their own fakes for their own agendas. So we got this question from New Orleans, Peter. How worried are you about AI and deep fakes? Um, I mean, I'm thinking about it a lot. Like I think a lot of people are. I mean, I think you have to be thoughtful about this question. From this particular conflict, I, I wondered when going into it whether AI was somehow going to compete in terms of power and, and meaning with the images taken by professional photojournalists and, frankly, amateur photographers and videographers of reality. And, and AI is not coming anywhere close from anywhere I've seen. You know, reality itself is still more painful, troubling, and emotional than, than anything one's imagination can come up with and filter mm. through an algorithm. Whether or not that changes at some point is a different question, but, but, but we are not at that, that point yet. I think what I sometimes find more troubling is, is all the images being used from different conflicts or different situations entirely to be used as evidence of, of the violence from this particular conflict. That's I mean, all we have is a fidelity to fact. And this theme brings me to a question that's been on my mind a lot in Ukraine, but especially in Gaza and Israel, we've seen just an extraordinary amount of disinformation and propaganda in photo form. Now, that's not new in war, of course, but it's social media, really, that's made the, the, the immediacy and the impact and the potency of these fakes and this propaganda so much more important, I think. So, Lindsay, how are you thinking about that overlay? It's not only the ability to fake the photos, propaganda is not new, but it's the algorithm and the context that gets around the world with 4 million views before somebody debunks it. 
Well, I think that as a viewer and as a reader, you have to sort of curate your news source, right? You have to find trusted news sources, and you know that the New York Times, Reuters, AP, Washington Post, uh, they will check their images, and they get their their images from trusted journalists on the ground. And I think that that's probably first and foremost. If I see an image out there sort of in the public and I have no idea, you know, where it's coming from, I'll question it just because I've learned to question everything now because on social media, uh, social media is full of non-facts. So I think it's really important for you as the viewer to, to, to figure out where you actually want to get your trusted news source. Does it make you mad, Peter, taking the amount of risk and personal investment that you take to do your job to do this form of truth-telling when, when faking it for an agenda is so very easy? Not just faking it for an agenda, but getting it in front of millions of people in a second. I mean, these things are so much, so much bigger than me that, that kind of anger doesn't really quite come into it. I... I try and do what I can with the, the limited voice I have to do right by these, these subjects as I see them and understand them. Um, and that's all I can do. I mean, to, to, to think abstractly about all these things you can't control, you know, would be, be, be too much, too much for me. Mm, I appreciate that. Um, we're going to take a quick pause here, but we've got a lot of your questions still ahead. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. Let's get back to our voicemail inbox. Here's a tough one. I would like to know the reaction of journalists all over the world seeing their fellow journalists in Gaza getting killed because they are reporting stories. Tough, of course, but something I think everyone in the profession thinks about. Um, Lindsay, why don't you start? You know, I... uh... As someone who's been held at gunpoint for a week in Libya simply for covering the popular uprising and kidnapped in Iraq as well, uh, you know, it makes me very emotional to see journalists being killed or targeted uh, in a conflict zone because I think, as we said before, journalism is not a crime. It is it is fundamental to our functioning society. Free press is very important. And it's heartbreaking to see uh, journalists in Gaza or anywhere else getting killed. I think it's, you know, it, it should not happen anywhere. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports that 40 journalists, six of them photographers, have died in the Israel-Hamas war since its start. Um, Peter, Nicole, I, I open it to you to give your thoughts about that question. Nicole, go ahead. Yeah, I think that uh, the world over in the last <clears throat> 10, 15 years, um, especially with the rise of, you know, how easy it is to get information online and things like that, um, uh, journalists have become even more of a target. Um, and I think that with with every, you know, journalist that's killed, is it, it, the old adage goes that the first casualty of war is the truth. Um, and it is in the interest of 
governments and militant groups to silence the journalists who are out there seeking seeking information and seeking truth. Um, and it's just much easier in a way to, to get rid of them um, than to go through them because it serves their agenda. So certainly, yeah, it's very heartbreaking to, to see in, day in, day out, the, the journalists in Gaza being targeted. Um, and uh, it just means that we, we're having fewer and fewer voices coming from inside. One listener in Minneapolis writes to ask, I would love to know what the panel most wants to convey to viewers of their photographs. Is it the tragedy of war, human resilience, the importance of community? When they go back and look at their work, just certain themes surface. And Lindsay, I, I, I bring us back to the point that your photo book is called Love and War, right? It's, it, it is about war. It's also about family and survival and cherishing life. I think that's what the photos convey. And I think this question kind of gets to the heart of that. Yeah. And I think that we see, uh, of course, the most horrific things in war, but we also see the most beautiful acts of generosity, kindness, resilience. Uh, You know, I've learned so much from the people that I've covered in war. And I've, you know, I, I think... Um, it's extraordinary what you see. You see the spirit of human beings when everything else is stripped away. And I think that's something that drives me to keep going back because, you know, at the end of the day, people can be horrible, but they can also be extraordinary and beautiful. And I think it's important not to forget that. Um, Nicole, Stephen Baltimore emailed us to ask, do you feel there's a difference in the ability to get access between male and female photojournalists? Uh, I think it depends on which part of the world you're working in. Uh, Sometimes, especially when societies are a little bit more segregated, um, then yes, as a woman, you do have uh, sometimes an easier time getting access uh, to the women who are separated from from men. And um, you, you you can sometimes be treated in a way as a third gender uh, because you can float between um, both men and women. Um, on the other hand, I think sometimes as a woman, you're, you're kind of seen as um, maybe less capable or, you know, just, yeah, just the sort of general um, sexism in, in the field that um, we receive as female photojournalists. Um, but I, I try to turn that into an advantage because, um, you know, if people underestimate you all the time. Um, the only people person you have to prove yourself to is yourself, I suppose. And uh, so, yeah, there, there are differences, but it really depends on where in the world you're working. Um, Lindsay, I would love to hear your thoughts on this question. And just to add that you were 27 weeks pregnant in 2011 when you traveled to the Gaza Strip on assignment for The New York Times. And that sounds like an added layer. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I worked uh, very extensively while I was pregnant. Um, I, you know, I've worked my entire adult life and I have witnessed so many pregnant women in the field around me, sort of everywhere I've ever worked. So I didn't suddenly feel like I had to stop because I had a very healthy pregnancy. Um, I was sent to Gaza when I was 27 weeks pregnant, or I was like 25 weeks until I was 27 weeks pregnant. I covered the prisoner exchange uh, of Gilad Shalit uh, with, I think, around 1,000 Palestinians. And so, yeah, I was there for the run-up to that and then the day that they were released and a few days after. And then, um, 
there was a moment where I was sort of in the crush of the prisoners being released, and I suddenly looked down, and I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, and so I just sort of screamed baby and put my arms out, and all the men just made a giant circle around me and protected me while I kept shooting, and mm. then I left a few days after that. Um, Lindsay, we're getting a lot of sort of as corollary to this, a lot of questions on the question of courage and fear. And and a listener in Georgia texted us to ask, where do they get the courage? How do they overcome the fear? And you alluded to it earlier in the hour, but you've been kidnapped twice doing your work. If you want to let us in a little bit on what happened in either of those situations and then maybe comment on fear and whether it's courage or just overcoming fear to do your job. Look, I think it's. Uh, I think any one of us doing this work experiences fear. Um, I, uh, I certainly continue to be scared in the field and and navigate sort of how do I handle fear. A lot of it has to do with identifying where the fear is coming from. What am I scared of? How do I minimize those risks? Uh, how much of that fear stems from past trauma? How much of that is current? Um, and I have to sort of break it down, really, to understand how to move forward. Um, obviously, the thing about being kidnapped is that you uh, or I was completely powerless. You know, I, when you are held hostage, you have absolutely no control over your destiny uh, except for hopefully staying quiet, and that would be the thing that keeps you alive. So I think there is a huge amount of fear, you know, to, to have your life in the hands of people with guns to your head. And, and you know, in Libya, we were beaten, tied up, blindfolded, threatened with ex- execution, uh, thrown in the back of pickup trucks and lynched every 45 minutes uh, for 400 miles under the hot sun. I mean, it went on and on. But I think the, you know, you should never under, underestimate how strong the human mind is, and and you know we have uh, a survival instinct, and that really kicks in. This is a great question, and and one maybe to end on from Michael in Florida, who asks, "What's the best way to support photojournalists' work?" Peter, go ahead. Um, put down Instagram and sub- subscribe to publications that have a history of sound reporting and integrity and ethics. I mean, the biggest barrier right now for most photographers is is budgets. It's the fact that people want to get their information from uncurated news sources or from algorithms rather than uh, publications with uh, history and integrity. Support uh, quality. So that su- would be what I recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Support quality work. Go after quality work. Boost quality work. Be willing to pay a little bit for quality work. Also, I don't mind boosting the Committee to Protect Journalists, which does essential work in this area for journalists, photojournalists overseas. I'm a supporter. Please consider being a supporter as well. I want to thank our guests. That's Peter von Ochtmal. He's a photographer with the agency Magnum Photos. Also with us today, Lindsay Adario. She's author of It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. And Nicole Tong, a photojournalist working with the New York Times. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and In Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America.